Welcome to the Environmental Leadership Chronicles, a podcast brought to you by the California Association of Environmental Professionals. In this episode, I'm joined by co-host Corinne Lido-Bonine, and we feature Pedro Peterson. Pedro manages the local planning section at the California Air Resources Board, known as CARB, which provides resources and guidance to local governments on how to align land use and mobility policies with the state's climate, air quality, and equity commitments. He's previously led teams at CARB overseeing investments from the Greenhouse Gas Reduction Fund on affordable housing and transportation. And before joining CARB, he was a senior planner with the City of San Francisco, an independent consultant for the Inter-American Development Bank in Washington, D.C. And Pedro completed his PhD in city and regional planning at UC Berkeley. Join us on this podcast as we learn about Pedro's insight on leadership as an environmental professional and his career pathway to doing so. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy. Hi, I'm Jessa. My pronouns are she, her. And hi, I'm Corinne. My pronouns are she, her. And today we have Pedro Peterson, who is manager of the local planning section of the Sustainable Transportation Communities Division at CARB. Welcome, Pedro. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Jessa, and thank you, Corin. Um, my, my name is Pedro Peterson, pronouns he, him. Really appreciate the opportunity to be here with you all today. Yes, we agree. And so first things first, how are you connected to AEP? Okay, so I am connected to AEP because I attended uh, your annual conference in Lake Tahoe this spring. I, um, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about this later, but I, I became manager of the local planning section, as you mentioned, about a year, year and a half ago. And uh, we, uh, my section was responsible for developing the local actions appendix to the uh, the latest scoping plan update. Uh, that uh, the scoping plan is the state's uh, blueprint for meeting carbon neutrality goals by 2045. And our section developed the, this appendix that focused on how local governments can align their uh, some of their policies with the state's climate goals. And so we uh, we felt it was important to attend a P conference uh, to be able to um, uh, attend uh, different panels and and sort of have those sort of sidebar conversations that uh, you know you always end up having at conferences like that to just talk to practitioners about um, how they were uh, engaging with the local actions appendix and the recommendations in there how they're uh, implementing those and um and so I, I attended that conference for the first time in my career um with a couple of colleagues who i are, are members of aap uh fairly active members and, and have attended that conference before so um it was really great to to meet you all was there and, and get the invitation to join this podcast so yeah that's that's my connection is, is attending that conference and 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 being in these uh conversations around uh, CEQA and, and local planning and climate change. That's well, great. I was going to say, we were, yeah, we were one of those uh, sidebar conversations. So uh, exactly. <laughs> we benefited from your attendance as well. And yeah, yeah Corinne is really nice on the, the state board for AEP. So did a lot of help in facilitating that conference, which is my first conference too. It was incredible. Highly shout out plug for the conference because uh, absolutely it was it was, so it, was so, it was such a great conference. I I, I learned so much and uh, and got into such interesting 
both the panels are really interesting uh, and just a really broad range of perspectives. And the um, yeah, these these more informal chats that we had, you know, across the, the those few days were were great. And beautiful setting too is you know in the Olympic Valley and in in, uh, in uh, Lake Tahoe is uh, is beautiful. Uh, so I really appreciated being there. And shameless plug for the 2024 conference yes. at Anaheim. So we won't necessarily have snow-capped mountains, although there's the Matterhorn with Disneyland mm-hmm. being walking. <laughs> um, but uh, definitely the conversations and networking and um, all of our, you know, CEQA, GHG, you know, NEPA, nerd talk um, definitely uh, will occur next year as well. Everybody should attend. Oh, great. Done. We can wrap up. This is uh, <laughs> a three-minute advertisement for the conference. No, um, well, yeah, hopefully uh, we'll see you there uh, at the, the next one in the spring. So, um, well, let's get into this. So, um, talking more about, you know, your experience in the environmental field, and you said that your position is, you know, relatively, you know, new in relation to your career, about a year, year and a half in your current role. And so, tell us how you really got started in the environmental industry. What drew you to it what led you to it and kind of just like the pathway like where did you study it what was your first job just kind of just talk us through your career path and how you got to your current position and your you know interest in the environmental industry sure um so my first job out of undergrad was actually so i did i studied under uh political science as a as an undergraduate in uh in atlanta and so my first job uh, coming out of there was uh, for a small environmental nonprofit in Atlanta called the Georgia Conservancy that was uh, you know, focused on on land conservation in Georgia. And uh, I, I worked in the, the sort of development fundraising grants management uh, team over there and um, started getting really drawn to this program that they had there called uh, Blueprint for successful communities. Uh, so you know they had these sort of more sort of natural and working lands preservation programs, but then they they had this program that was focused on sort of smart growth principles. They would have these community planning workshops uh, in uh, in different communities across Georgia, and I got really drawn to that. And uh, it kind of really gave me this aha moment because the people working, the staff that were working in, in this program, were largely planners, you know, urban planners, and they. Uh, had a really sort of diverse set of backgrounds. I, I kind of associated urban planning at the time with just architecture and design. Um, and I was a political science major, didn't really see as something that was for me. Uh, but then just, you know, seeing people with social science backgrounds uh, doing this really interesting planning work, kind of sort of a light bulb went off in my head and I decided that I wanted to you know, learn more. And I sort of, I volunteered time uh, at the time, you know, for, for this program and started thinking about maybe going to grad school for it. Uh, So this was, you know, 2003, 2004. Um, So I applied to a whole bunch of grad schools for planning and, uh, and ended up coming to uh, Berkeley. So I I did uh, my master's in planning at Berkeley. um, And then sort of finished that and worked in consulting for a few years in San Francisco and then um, went back to do a PhD in planning. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's sort of, I can kind of get into my career more in a bit, but this question about 
why a career in the environmental profession. It's interesting. I I feel like I have always been doing work in the environmental profession, even though like I didn't consider a lot of the, this planning work since I left the Georgia Conservancy to be specific about the environment. You know, I, I feel like um, especially in the last ten years or so, I've been uh, uh, reflecting a lot on on this and uh, and how it probably makes less and less sense to think specifically about an environmental profession. I think we're, we're in this climate crisis. I think all of us, you know, working in you know, whether it's healthcare, education, uh, labor, service sector, like I think uh, we're all just trying to sort of adapt and, uh, and you know, uh, engage with this, with this reality of our climate crisis. Uh, so I was, uh, when I, after my PhD, I went to work for the city of San Francisco on housing and community planning. Um, and, uh, you know, it just became very clear to me that this was very much environmental work, you know, trying to promote more, uh, more housing opportunities, uh, you know, close to transit in San Francisco and, 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 you know, the sort of the Bay Area is a place where, uh, you know, the sort of cooler climate and, and, and maybe a place where we want to expand housing opportunities for people to, to be able to live in as, as our state warms. And so, um, I, I feel like I, had been doing work in the environmental profession and then just kind of came to realize that like, Oh no, I am actually an environmental professional now. And so, um, yeah, so I, I, I started looking for opportunities to work on the sort of the intersection of, of housing and climate, uh, at the state level and, uh, and saw a couple of opportunities that seemed really interesting at CARB and, you know, reached out to some folks and ended up coming here. I moved to Sacramento and started working at CARB almost exactly five years ago. And uh, initially I worked for a team that uh, oversees the investments from the uh, state's cap and trade auction proceeds. So the California Climate Investments Program, uh, it's a sort of big range of, uh, of program types from you know affordable housing to clean transportation, land conservation and all that. So, um, I worked in with that group for a few years. And then, as I mentioned, about a year and a half ago, I moved over to the local planning section that's focused sort of coming back to my planning roots, uh, uh, working with local governments to align uh, particularly their their sort of land use policies and, and decision-making under CEQA with the state's climate goals. Um, we also, I'll make a plug here. We, uh, my, a couple of people in my section also implement a program called the Sustainable Transportation Equity Project, or STEP. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a it's a great project making, you know, we uh, don't have a lot of funding, but with the funding that we do have, we make these uh, grants of eight to $10 million uh, on average to uh, disadvantaged communities across the state to implement, uh, you know, mobility, uh, you know, uh, projects and uh, expand access to mobility options while also reducing uh, vehicle miles traveled in those communities. Um, and it's, you know, investments in, in needs that have been identified through a community planning processes. It's a, it's a really wonderful program. Um, so that's also uh, something that my team has been working on. That's my first question. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead, Corinne. Um, just kind of right off the bat is, you know, working, you know, within and adjacent to um, 
you know, industries trying to provide solutions to the climate crisis can sometimes be exhausting and depressing. <laughs> and it feels like we're just not getting there quick enough. But um, I thought the STEP program was a wonderful example. And I'm wondering if there's any other things you can point to that you and CARB are doing that should give us all hope. Oh, yes. Great question. Um, so uh, STEP is actually part of a bigger suite of programs um, that uh, it's called the, the Low Carbon Transportation Incentive Programs um, that is largely overseen by this other division within CARB. Uh, but they make uh, investments in, um, you know, everything from, you know, heavy duty vehicles, uh, uh, agricultural, you know, agricultural equipment. Uh, the, there's the, the well-known uh, CVRP, Clean Vehicle Rebate Program, um, that uh, provides incentives for consumers to uh, purchase uh, zero emission vehicles. Uh, that is, uh, it's been in the news, it's been sort of going through through a transition to focus more you know now that the the EV market is a little bit more established to focus more on um, on lower income consumers uh, and um, and then we have uh, so close to step there's a, a lot of coordination with another team that that runs a program called clean mobility options that's uh, primarily focused on on uh, vehicle sharing and, and bike sharing programs that so they're smaller grants than the the ones that I mentioned under step um but that you know are, are sort of are a great resource for communities that may be uh less resource to put together a proposal to reduce vmt for example they th this program is a little bit sort of like a lower barrier to to be able to uh uh, uh create these these car sharing programs uh vehicle uh, and, and bike sharing programs in um in disadvantaged communities um you know, we have a, a whole bunch of uh, regulations that I think are really helping to move the needle around, uh, you know, clean, clean transportation and buildings, the Advanced Clean Cars 2 regulation to essentially require vehicle sales by 2035 to be uh, all electric. Uh, uh, a different team in my division is working on uh, uh, building decarbonization and appliance standards efforts. So I feel like there's a lot of exciting things happening at CARB. Um, you know, across a, a spectrum of of, uh, of areas. So that's great. And then I, you know, um, your resume, as you told, is super impressive, and seems like you've been able to dabble in, you know, advocacy work, NGO work, obviously public service. It sounds like a little bit of you know private, uh, maybe consulting work as well. Um, you know, for our listeners who, you know, haven't had that widespread um you know kind of employment opportunities would you mind giving kind of highs and lows of each one um or what you know maybe your favorite parts were or you know just share your experience having worked across that breadth of you know employment types sure uh that's a great question i um i've worked in consulting now in a couple of different capacities so i i after i finished my master's program i went to work for a sort of a municipal finance consulting firm called Cyphal Consulting in, in San Francisco. Uh, I, you know, I really enjoyed working there. I learned a ton. Uh, it, it became clear to me that I, I think consulting wasn't where I was meant to be. I think I, uh, you know, I, the sort of the constant turnover of projects and new, uh, uh, new clients and uh, you sort of like, 
you kind of catch a project at a certain sort of slice and you kind of only see that slice and then, you know, the sort of sort of pass it on to another consulting firm or to the, or to the client. Um, I, I, I've, I've enjoyed since being in the public sector, being able to sort of take a program or a project and kind of be part of it through, you know, it's, it's life cycle. Uh, I, and the sort of, engagement that you have with the communities where those projects are going, um, I think has been really valuable and I've enjoyed that. Um, I spent, spent some time, you know, in academia doing my PhD, uh, and that was wonderful. I also, you know, learned a lot doing that. Uh, but I, again, I, I, I really like being in sort of collaborative environments and, and working with other people. And I, I kind of felt like, uh, being a PhD student and, and trying to be an academic uh, was a bit of a, a lonely process. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I, I like the, the sort of collaborative environment, you, you know, even in this sort of, uh, you know, sort of hybrid telework environment where we're sort of collaborating over teams. I, for my team, I try to create some opportunities intentionally for us to get together and, and, uh, and sort of see each other in person. But um but yeah, I, 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 I like collaboration and I like working with other people. So um, to me, the uh, sort of government work is, is really well suited to that. So, Yeah, I think that's great that you've had that diversity of experience where you get to learn, this is what I like. This is not mm -hmm. for me, but <laughs> for someone else. And I think it's it's so interesting to hear all the different sectors that you've um, been exposed to in your career. And it, you know, I, I don't want to speak for you, but I can imagine it just makes you such a more well-rounded professional to see, be able to see these issues from different lenses and who's experiencing that and working in you know these different sectors where you're where you kind of had this aha moment of wait this is environmental it's all environmental <laughs> yeah i mean i feel very fortunate to have been exposed to all of these you know different potential career trajectories um i think one of the things that's been really valuable to me also you know i sort of i work for state government now but i manage something called the local planning section and you know, before I came to CARB, I worked for local government. You know, I worked for the city of San Francisco. Uh, the municipal finance work that I did was, you know, consulting for local governments. And so I, I kind of feel like I, you know, have worn those shoes before and understand some of the challenges. Uh, you know, obviously the, the challenges facing San Francisco are different than the challenges facing Los Angeles or Stockton or, you know, wherever. But, um, but I do think that there is a, you know, a sort of a particular closeness when you're working in local government to the community and to th those challenges and the, and that you kind of get pulled in lots of different directions that uh, hopefully in, in my current role, I've been able to have a little bit of uh, or have some empathy and, and understanding of, of what local government employees and planners are, are sort of dealing with when we are um, working on our you know, recommendations and our incentive programs and all of that. So. Yeah. So you could actually, when you're, you're working with them, you're like, I've, I've been in your shoes. I understand, exactly. you know, like yes. <laughs> I've been yelled at at a public meeting before. <laughs> and yeah, <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> um, and kind of thinking too, about again, the, the different levels of experience you've had in your career and something that we're a big promoter of at AEP is 
mentorship. And so for the next generation or um, students looking to get into the field, do you have any advice as far as like mentorship or looking for the next opportunity and um, how people can get exposed to different types of industry or get their foot in the door at some of these places when they are just out of school or are just kind of starting to explore, um, you know, what is out there as far as environmental adjacent or direct positions? Yeah, I mean, I think mentorship is really, you know, this is this sounds trite, but I think it's, it's really critical. Uh, I think programs uh that provide those opportunities you know i have benefited from those immensely and i try to uh you know sort of make myself available to uh to these programs um i i attended you know at the ap conference there was uh, a session on your uh internship program um and uh you know the the interns and the graduates of that program seem like just incredibly bright people who um, may not have gotten into the environmental field or may have gotten and gotten discouraged had they not uh, been able to sort of plug into those networks. Um, so I, my recommendation is just to look for those opportunities. You know, s some will be better than others. So I, you know, I imagine that the, that the, the AP uh, internship program may be, um, you know, it's, sounds as impressive as any others that, I, that I've heard, but uh, I don't think there's anything to lose from just looking for those opportunities. Um, and uh, yeah, and, and my recommendation to people who are developing those programs is to look for, uh, look for these kinds of examples and, you know, and provide opportunities that are paid, I think is really important so that, you know, that they uh, provide a real, uh, real path for people who may not have other sources of income or are able to sort of get into debt to be able to participate uh, and just, yeah, just really lower the barrier to entry to, to allow for people with, um, with different backgrounds to be able to participate. And um, yeah. And, and, and at CARB I've been, you know, we have a, a, a mentorship program for uh, junior staff that I've uh, been a, a mentor in, couple of times uh, to sort of help get them into uh, sort of a management track. Uh, we try to engage with uh, different um, internship programs or the, uh, I know a couple of the sort of planning uh, grad schools uh, in California will have uh, capstone projects that require a sponsor. So we've, you know, looked for opportunities to be sponsors of those grad, grad students that are you know, trying to develop good research projects that are often quite helpful to us, you know, that like provide uh, some insights into questions that we're very much grappling with. And so uh, I really love being a, a, a sort of a, I don't know if mentor is the right word or, the, or a client to those kinds of projects. Um, so I've done that a couple of times. I know there's a car, I've done that a couple of times. And so, you know, if you are a graduate student listening to this, uh, looking for opportunities uh, in, you know, in my area, feel free to reach out and, uh, or, yeah, or, or reach out to, to folks that may be in your area um, at CARB or other, other agencies. I know OPR, the Office of Planning and Research, has um, a, a fellows program too that um, is, uh, you know, I, I, I've seen them produce really interesting research. Uh, so, 
my advice is take advantage of these programs where you can. Um, yeah, and if you're doing, if you're putting together one of those programs, pay your interns. <laughs> I love that. I think paid internships are so important. And, you know, you really want to shed the, oh, well, you know, when I was your age, I did an unpaid internship. And it's just, you know, especially in our uh, efforts to make, you know, AEP and the environmental profession in general more diverse, you know, removing that barrier to entry and, you know, expecting that uh, people participate in unpaid internships or then have that internship experience when looking for full-time entry-level work. Um, mm -hmm. I think it's really important that we kind of shed that, you know, model that, that you know, did lead to um, limiting opportunities uh, to people to participate in this profession. Yeah. Uh, I also want yeah, to just, well, oh, go ahead. I had this one experience when I was in college that was amazing, um, which, so my college was associated with the, the Carter Center, uh, the so President Carter's uh, library and and his um, he, or he and, and his wife's uh, programs around the world to promote democracy and public health. Um, and I got an internship there for a semester. And the only reason I was able to do it is because they allowed that internship that you basically got like credit, like school credit. And so then I didn't have to work, take that class. I could do that and I could keep working, which I had my own like, like job. And so I didn't have to give up any income. I could just like keep doing it. But then I wanted to stay on there, um, but they didn't have any paid internships. And I, I, I had like for the summer and I had to drop off and go away tables during the summer instead of doing that. Cause I had to pay the bills. Right. So, um, yeah. So I think that that is very, very important to, Especially, I mean, like young people are just facing so many challenges, including paying for college and paying for their education that like donating their labor is very, very difficult. Even if there's a payoff down the road, like they still have to pay the bills. Yeah, completely agree. And then, uh, you know, shameless plug for people listening who might be interested in mentorship opportunities, whether it's peer mentoring, one-on-one -on -one mentoring, um, we do have a couple programs available at AEP, so check out our website. We also previously taped a podcast um, describing our mentorship programs, and we are now, um, you know, about 10% into our first uh, mentorship cycle where created peer mentoring groups and then also one-on-one -on -one mentor mentee relationships and we have you know agendas um that are you know meant to be helpful um to those people that can you know be used each month but we also if you you know are interested and missed out on that opportunity um we do have instructions on our website for how to find uh, potential mentors using our online database so check out our website um it should have my contact information um, as well as our other co-chair, Connie. Um, so if, you know, listeners have any questions about what you can do to uh, use AEP to help you find mentorship, just uh, let me know and I'd love to point you in that direction. I think um, something you said, Pedro, is so important is that, you know, we talk a lot on this about mentorship and the AEP mentorship program. And you know, the title of this podcast is the Environmental Leadership Chronicles, and we feature leaders in the environmental industry who are often in a position to set up these programs and to make the decisions on the internships being paid. And so while there, yes, there is an individual uh, responsibility and accountability to go out and find these opportunities, I think on us, on the leadership side, there is also uh, the accountability to create 
the opportunities and to make them accessible. And like you said, accessible. And the fact of like, they're posted, <laughs> there's a database you like with AEP and there's resources. I'm sure CARB has, you know, something, uh, you know, posted on their site. And um, in addition to making those decisions for it to be paid and to have other perks and to support those as leaders. So I think that's a really, really good point that we not only do, uh, you know, the students and, you know, early entry-level career individuals go out and find the opportunities, but we have the responsibility to create those opportunities ourselves and, and uh, promote them. So that's my takeaway. <laughs> that's all great points. Um, I'm going to pivot a little bit back to something. Um, so, you know, one of the questions we like to ask uh, guests are, you know, what's your definition of sustainability and what does that involve evolving into and something, you know, that I think is interesting. It's in your title, right? When we introduced you, sustain, uh, you know, sustainable transportation communities is in your title. And so, you know, I'm sure it's a word you hear a lot day to day. And I think it's something that we say, um, and I say we collectively, that, you know, with not a lot of intent or like, so I'm wondering what your definition is of sustainability when you're talking about it and how you think about it in your role um, at CARB and, you know, more broadly, what does that mean to you and where do you see it going? Yeah, I mean, I, um, I guess I'll start with a definition of sustainability that I probably hear the most, but I don't like very much, which is the sort of classic like Brundtland Commission that, you know, sustainability means meeting the, the sort of society's current needs without compromising uh, the, uh, the needs of future generations. I kind of feel like that sort of sidesteps some important you know, critical issues of like resource distribution, environmental justice, sort of historic dispossession, and sort of how we got to this this place today. Um, I don't think a society that has this much uh, uh, inequality and injustice is sustainable uh, in a meaningful sense. And so um, I think a better framing is uh, one that I often hear public health professionals and advocates uh, talk about in terms of environmental justice and access to opportunity, which is that sort of where you are born, like whether it's your zip code or your community or your country, uh, shouldn't be a predictor of your sort of health outcomes and your educational opportunities and, and your overall happiness. Um, I think, you know, in order for that to be true, I think you need a sort of an underlying um, uh, level of uh, sort of respect and stewardship for the natural environment um, and uh, and creating, you know, opportunities for people to make a living, to, to be in nature, to uh, have a good education, um, and to just sort of, yeah, just live their daily lives in, in dignity. I think that, uh, to me, that even though it's not necessarily tied to sort of the natural environment, I, I, I think that um, it presupposes that we that, that that's something that is available to everyone. So, um, yeah, so I, I would say my view of sustainability is one that is uh, is tied to, um, to just a, a baseline level of, of happiness and uh, and dignity and, and opportunity for everyone. Uh, with 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 
respect and stewardship for the natural environment. I love that response because I've, I'm sure I've mentioned this at some point before in the podcast is that I really think of things as like Maslow's hierarchy. And so when you're talking about like the baseline, it's like the baseline being met and sustainability, because it's like if these things, if one of these things are missing, like security, um, you know, food, clean air, clean water, like how can you advance into those other like, you know, uh, levels up in the, the hierarchy. So Mm -hmm. I've never actually thought about that though, in connection with sustainability. So I'm going to noodle on that a little bit. I, I like, I really appreciate your definition. Yeah, thank you. It's a great question. It's something that we all, like you said, we we kind of throw that word around, uh, and we all assume that everybody has the same understanding of what that word means, but it, it's not necessarily true, and uh, and we may not even have a good grasp of it, uh, you know. But it's something that we need to kind of come back to. Yeah, and I think you know it's one of those words like green or eco that can get greenwashed quite a bit and and lose some of its intention and meaning. And one of the reasons, actually, the catalyst for this being a question that we like to ask is years ago, um, another professional and I were discussing sustainability, and I can't remember just having a conversation. And I always think about sustainability as environmentally associated. And this person thought about it associated with financial sustainability. And we just kind of looked at each other and had this aha moment of like, well, we're not speaking the same language right now in, right. in what we're talking about. So um, I always find it interesting to hear uh, the viewpoint, especially from, from those in the environmental profession. And and so with the, you know, you're doing a lot of work um, advancing these initiatives as far as like the state's initiatives and with the, the local communities and clean air and transportation. And, and so what is your dream for the environmental profession? And, you know, as a leader and someone who's in a position to be influential and, um, you know, very knowledgeable and educated, like, like, where would you like to see the environmental profession go? Yeah, so I, uh, at the risk of, you know, the you know, the saying of when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail, uh, at, at the risk of like sounding like a hammer here around sort of uh, planning and, and cities, I, I, I would like the environmental profession to sort of recognize cities as this sort of critical technology to allow for humans and society to live harmoniously with the, the rest of the, the natural world. I, I, I feel like cities are a way to efficiently, uh, it allows us to be more connected to each other uh, when we are sort of living and uh, sharing public spaces and um, and uh, allows us to preserve uh, natural and working lands and habitat. And so uh, I would like to sort of see sort of urbanists and environmentalists kind of like blend into sort of being one and the same. Um, I think this shift is is largely happening in many ways. You know, I've listened to a couple of uh, of these podcasts about people speaking about, you know, housing as a climate strategy and and thinking about uh, uh, CEQA as a way to promote infill uh, and all that. So obviously this is very much happening, but I do still think that there are parts of sort of the environmental movement that are still somewhat uh, uh, 
maybe pastoral in their approach uh, in a way that I don't think is very compatible with our current challenges. And so um, I, uh, yeah, I, I think that we, we should be uh, embracing cities uh, and what they can offer us and what they can, uh, you know, sort of the, as a way of sort of living richer lives and also as a way of, uh, of just, reducing our footprint, you know, uh, and be able to sort of preserve what's outside of them in a, in a more meaningful way. That's great. I love that. I'm motivated. I, I think about this, um, you know, your response reminds me, we had a chat GPT con, oh my gosh, contest, um, excuse me, um, a generative AI podcast, uh, mm -hmm. a couple of weeks ago that we did. And, it was like, listen, AI is not going away. So how do we work with it and not fight it? And like you're saying, mm -hmm. it's like, you know, we have cities, we have urbanization. How do we work with it instead of fighting and trying to undo all this that's already been done? How do we have a more sustainable future um, in collaboration with the urbanization that's inevitable and it's like already happened? So I think that's a... Yeah, I mean, and we... Cities are just technology that has existed for thousands of years, uh, and you know, I I would sometimes like read these articles about you know, like is there some big tech innovation that can allow us to like solve the housing crisis or solve climate? It's just like like we just you know we have apartment buildings and we have buses and we you know like and bikes like these things have existed for a long time, and they're just like staring us right in the face, and uh, we just need to embrace that and. Um, yeah, I think um, that there, I know, I think that sometimes you see sort of these like cultural norms, explanations for like why people in the U.S. can't, you know, they need to live in the suburbs with their cars or whatever. And, um, you know, I, to me that a lot of that's just tied to sort of our policy choices and the kinds of things that we subsidize as a society uh, and, uh, and, you know, different societies have sort of shifted from car dependency to just living densely in, in cities it, it seamlessly. And so uh, it's it's something that if we in the United States or in California decided that we wanted to be serious about, I think we could very much do that. And to your point, you know, earlier about everything being interconnected, you know, of course, that brings up housing affordability, too. And where can people afford to live and live the way that they want to or the, the way they've been programmed to think they want to? And needing to shift all of that is, you know, part of the environmental environmental profession, just like, you know, the rest of kind of the more standard, um, you know, jobs or employment that that we've talked about. Sure. Yeah, I'm thinking about this article I read and it was about bus stops in LA not having shade and just this like baking heat and how, you know, hot it was getting. And so they installed like people were standing in the shade by like a lamppost or a street sign, which is like, you know, this like three mm -hmm. to four inch sliver just for some relief. And so they installed these, uh, you know, posts with some kind of overhang and it's like trees. Trees are the answer. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we have shade. It's amazing it technology. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, okay. Well, I think we'll um, get into our wrap up rapid five. I uh, really okay. appreciated the conversation with you, Pedro. A lot to uh, a lot of uh, salient points that have me thinking and uh, hopeful too. 
So really appreciate that. Um, all right. So what is your favorite daily habit? My favorite daily habit is, so I, I am uh, 44. Uh, when I turned 40, I uh, decided that I wanted to learn how to play the piano and uh, spend my 40s learning how to play the piano. So I, I start, started taking lessons. Uh, this was shortly before the pandemic. Uh, and uh, and then during the pandemic, my my teacher sort of switched to Zoom lessons and I sort of kept kept going. And um, so I, I try to play a little bit of piano every day. I, I don't succeed you know, some days, but I, I try to sit down and you know, 15, 30 minutes a day, usually, you know, before going to sleep um, and uh, and play a little bit of piano. I love that. That's <laughs> wonderful. What's what's your favorite piece you've learned how to play so far? My favorite piece. Um, there is a, uh, a, a French uh, composer named Eric Satie, and he uh, there's a couple of pieces by him that I've, I learned. Uh, one is called a Gymnopédie number one, and the other one's called a Nocienne number one. So uh, those two, you have probably heard them in movies before. They're just these like really beautiful sort of, um, you know, just kind of moody, you know, kind of like I, I listen to those songs and I feel like I'm like, walking on like a rainy Paris Boulevard or something like that, you know, like that. And so I, I, I knew and loved those songs before I started playing the piano. And then when I started playing, you know, I'm just kind of learning from the very basic books. And then at some point I asked my teachers like, you know, could we try to learn these songs? And he said, sure. And so we, we, we did them and um, it took me a while to learn each of them, but I, I did it and it feels nice to be able to sit down and play those songs. I love that. I wonder, you just gave me an idea. I'm going to see if I can ask our, our sound engineer if we can get the rights to that music and play uh, it on outro. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> How fun. Okay. Um, what are three things you would bring to a deserted island? Uh, my brother is a big fan of these uh, survival shows, and he's always like telling me about like all oh, these. Per so I, I, I I probably will say a very wrong answer here in terms of being able to survive, but I would say a hammock, uh, some, you know, fishing gear of some kind. And, uh, because, you know, that helps you get fish and also helps to pass the time. Um, and then, uh, a very long book. And as I was thinking about this question, there's a book that I've been meaning to read. That's very long that I've read sort of chapters of, uh, in grad school, but I never read it from, beginning to end. So if I was in the desert island, I would bring this book, which is called The Power Broker, the book about Robert Moses in New York. So I'll bring The Power Broker, some fishing gear, and a hammock. I love that. Very practical, but a little bit of, you know, pleasure too. <laughs> there you go. What is your favorite environmental policy? So I don't know if this is my favorite environmental policy, but a an environmental policy that I heard about recently that I thought was heard and read about that I thought was very cool um, was uh, that France recently banned uh, these short flights between cities that have uh, some adequate level of train service. So where, where you can sort of take the trains between those cities, France has banned uh, flights between them. And I think that is brilliant. And uh, I love taking the train. Uh, you know, I don't, I've, I've been to Europe a couple of times and it's just, you know, to not have to go through 
security and you know sitting in the runway and like showing up two hours early and emitting a whole bunch of carbon into the atmosphere like i i it's just so much nicer to just be able to take the train and uh, stare out the window and and see the countryside you know so i i love that policy which it's probably they probably thought of as partly an environmental policy but partly just the sort of a, a transportation uh so I, 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 I like it a lot. Not my favorite one ever, but I, it's, it's recent and, and it just caught my attention recently. Very interesting. Yeah. I'll just, I haven't heard of that one. I'll look it up. I too love a good train ride. Um, what is your favorite flora or fauna? I love grizzly bears. I, uh, when I was in college, I spent a couple of summers waiting tables in Montana, in uh, Glacier National Park in Montana. Um, I, one of those summers was the summer where I, I couldn't stay at the Carter center. And I sort of was like, sort of before the summer started. And, and then my friend, uh, had gotten a job, uh, at a, at a restaurant outside of Glacier park. So I was just like, oh, I'll just go with you and, and do that. And so I did that. And, uh, you know, on your hikes there, you often will see grizzlies sort of like out in the distance. And I just really love sort of watching them interact and they, they have this, it, it almost they seem kind of human like in the way that they kind of interact with each other and they they'll just like sit there and like eat huckleberries for hours and it, it, they just seem very um yeah it's all very kind of slow and deliberate and i i, I just have this fondness for grizzly bears so that's, i that's really cool <laughs> i love that i just picture like the the bear just sitting there eating huckleberries socially just hanging out having a nice day by the river um Okay, finish this sentence. Wouldn't it be cool if? Wouldn't it be cool if everyone could get around safely and conveniently without needing a car? Yes. <laughs> I'm glad you agree with me, Jessica. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, Pedro. Again, this is wonderful. <laughs> we really enjoy you. Uh, coming and speaking with us and sharing your insight and your experience and, uh, you know, look forward to sharing this with our audience. Thank you so much. Uh, it's been an honor. It's the first time I've ever been on the podcast. So uh, I appreciate uh, the invitation and the great conversation. You nailed it. Did great. And Eric Satie will like see us off into the yes, closing credits yes. here. <laughs> Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to be updated when new episodes are released and leave us a review to let us know what you think. It also really helps us to share the podcast with others who may enjoy learning about the environmental industry. If you want to submit a shout out or any feedback, please send an email or voice memo to podcast at califaep.org. The email again is podcast with an S, podcast at califaep.org.